We're live when Terry says we are. Ah, there she says we are. Okay. Then she disappeared again. Now she's back up. Some kind of exercise regimen now, isn't it? July the 14th, 2019. Lecture discussion number 70 on the book of Joel. So if you haven't been here for the previous 69, oh my, what am I going to do? You'll, you'll probably not do well on the exam at the end of the class today. So, But actually, today is going to be a reintroduction, kind of a cleaning up all the debris day because of uh, the last two weeks. Uh, and uh, we are back in service today. We've been gone for two Sundays, uh, the summer hiatus. We try to take a summer, a spring, a summer, and a fall hiatus every year just to allow the Alaskans uh, that are here, not you Internet folks, you don't mind. Uh, you don't have the weather issues that we have, but um, everyone disappears in the spring, the, in the middle of summer. We had the greatest summer ever so far. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, made people who wanted to go back to California stay. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go back to California. It's collapsing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay, maybe I'm kidding a little bit. Um, I, for those of you on the Internet who have written me, and a lot of you have, I am reasonably recovered from my second atrial fibrillation experience. And as with the first, it sent me to the emergency room. I had a heart rate of 204. Lori was my driver, and I'm showing her. I have monitors everywhere now. I have them in my pocket. I have them on my wrist. I'm showing her this monitor, and it says my heart rate is 204, and my perfusion index uh, is essentially zero. That's my pulsatile blood. I had a, a ratio of zero, which is not ideal, trust me. I do not have supraventricular tachycardia. That's good news. That's SVT. That's very dangerous. I have um, atrial fibrillation. So it's my atria and the heart, not the ventricle, that is causing uh, me difficulty. So uh, uh, if I had to pick one, I would pick atrial fibrillation. But it's not much fun when it happens. And, uh, but so far, I've had no heart damage. I passed the enzyme test again the last time I was in. I'm now a regular customer. Uh, I shave my chest now. And you would understand why. They have advanced the, they have advanced the adhesives. <laughs> let, me, let me assure you that... Uh, that it is an extraordinary. I'm. I, I, I don't even know how to describe what it's like to take those things off. Uh, so, uh, as a repeat customer, I. They told me. They said you might consider this. Oh yeah. Now I look about. I look like a, a really. Uh, how do I describe myself? I don't look at mirrors if I can avoid it. But I have kind of a cross section of being 12 and being 66 all at the same time. It's not, not. Anyway, I have magic pills now, so I might as well see if I can, I can get to whoever manufactures these to come through for me. It is a, it's a diltiazem, and it, what it is is it slows the heart rate. It's a calcium blocker. I have problems. I don't have tachycardia. I really have brachycardia which means my heart rate at night's in the 40s. So if I take a, did I lose my, did you just shut me off? Okay. And I was feeding, well, that's because I got next to this, and so I'll be back over here, I promise. Unless, unless we get a call telling us something about this, then I'll hold it up. Do what we can. Anyway, my heart rate is um, very slow, and if I take a, uh, uh, a medicine that that reduces the heart rate, that's every bit as dangerous as running away. So I have those kinds of issues. But this is what they give, me, give you when you have this condition. I have 60 milligrams. It only takes 30 minutes for me to recover, hopefully, in the event my heart goes back into that fibrillation. So all I can say is old age is so much fun. It's much, much funner than I expected uh, and it's coming for you. So there you go. Anyway, I'm heavily monitored. And the lovely Lori has my heart rate displayed on her phone. And if she doesn't fall asleep during the lecture, all's going to be fine. We'll be, we'll be well. Okay.
As you might have expected, I had quite a few letters accumulated, a pile of them, um, over the past two weeks. I actually responded to them, and you're welcome to come up and read them. Lucas wrote me a book, a monograph, and I wrote him back a book. Um, and maybe you'll find that interesting. I brought them for your... So if any of you have insomnia, you can make copies. And one from Mary Ann as well. It's similar. They're very complicated uh, subjects, and they take a great deal of time to articulate the, the, uh, the aspects of them. And I, like I said, I actually responded to them by email. Can you believe that? To all of them that I got, I just brought these two. In my defense, I was incapacitated physically and disoriented mentally at the time I did it, so there's that. And I knew when I said that I responded to them by email and that I was disoriented, you would ask, how can we tell the difference between this specific time and the, all the other times? But I did select one out from, let me find it, that I thought was particularly of value here. You might figure out why when I read it. It's from Ralph from New Zealand. Hi, Ralph. Say hello to Lorraine. Dear Pastor Stephen, would you please increase production output? <laughs> it's not under my control anymore, Ralph. Uh, as I study the Bible every night, your current production levels are insufficient to meet my consumption demand. This may mean you're reorganizing current, this may mean you reorganize, you're, I'm sorry, this may mean you reorganizing current plans. However, I'm sure there are also other starving scripture junkies who also need feeding at high levels. Currently, I have had to find other teachers who aren't as funny as you. Evidence that I'm funny. Just saying. And they don't drive me nuts. As is my plan, with questions that lead to more questions that make my brain ache like you do. So please consider this request, and I pray the Lord to rebuke you in love, of course, for not feeding me properly. Answer me that dude. Okay, he's the one that, uh, that handed me that title, so that's pretty much fun. Also, as I said, I brought Marianne and Lucas. And they're lengthy. I don't have time to read it, but I'll put some of it on the board for you. I, I think you'll find them interesting. And they do fit into where we are, which is actually uh, Revelations chapter 1 through 3, the blessing. Uh, okay. Why am I feeding back? Good. Yeah, let's we turn this down maybe. Honey. That's why. Marianne was investigating the sign of Jonah, the three days and three nights. And she was looking for the sign of Jonah. I'm still doing it. Let's, let's get this one. You mute them both. She's looking for the sign of Jonah in the accounts of Adam. So, to make that specific, she's looking for the sign of Jonah in Genesis 2, 7 through 3, uh, 24. And this is really a fantastic endeavor by her, and she's to be, um, I just told her, it's so rare to find somebody that's, that's thinking of these kinds of things, even from the vast Internet audience. Lucas, I, where is Lucas? Is he in Ireland? I think he might be. I could be wrong, Lucas. You, uh, he might be in North Carolina. It's either one of those. Uh, I've narrowed it down. But uh, Lucas uh, was comparing Matthew, Matthew 17, 14 through 21, Mark 9, fourteen through 29. And Luke 9, uh, 37 through 45. And that's where the father brings his possessed son that has a deaf and dumb spirit, an unclean spirit. Mark 9, 17. Mark 9, 25. A mute spirit. And there's this confrontation then between Christ and a mute demon. 
And anytime you see a mute demon that has possessed somebody, you know that that is a messianic sign of David. Because only the Messiah can cast out a demon that has rendered its possessed host mute and deaf. I explained that many times over the past. If you don't know why that is, you can see me afterwards. So both of these subjects are exhaustive, as it is with any subject in the Bible, so that's nothing new. But with that said, the sign of Jonah in Genesis 2, 7 through 3, 24, as I said, is just hardly ever discussed by anybody. And that makes it particularly interesting to me, as you know. And the unclean, mute, and deaf demon of Mark 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9 also seldom discussed, but even more so, it's never connected or hardly ever to its obvious complements, both in the New and the Old Testament. So both of these uh, subjects are pretty much neglected, if not outright dismissed. And, uh, of course, I often ask, why? Why doesn't the church do these kinds of things anymore? It used to. This is not caffeinated. I have a lady in um, Arizona that's worried about me, and I want you to know, uh, Jennifer, there is, this is not caffeinated. And it's not Coke. I'm not allowed to tell you what it is. I will tell you that it still bears some possibility that I'll produce advertising revenue until somehow Coke finds out about it. How could they? (laughs) In addition, I don't believe that I have, I don't think I've taken the time in the vast Internet era to definitively assign the three days or three, or, and three nights of Jonah to Genesis 2-7 through 3-24. So I'm remiss here. And In other words, I've done it, but I don't think I've done it since we've been on the Internet. We've only been on the Internet ten years. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely incredible. Um, and so therefore I'm concerned it's not in the record. And obviously, I have hopefully given you the inference by how I've discussed it so far that Adam knew about the sign of Jonah. In the sense that he knew that there was three days and three nights of great meaning to God. And Adam understood what that meaning was. He not only knew there was great meaning, but he knew the meaning of the meaning. Does that make sense? If it does, I'm making you weird. So ask, how does he know this? Because I think it is beyond obvious that he did. And immediately, the first thing that you consider when you're looking for three days and three nights in in the accounts of Adam, in all the, uh, what we would call the Adamic verses, uh, we will look immediately at creation. Is the sign of Jonah in the seven days of creation, to phrase it uh, in a way that might make more sense, the three days and three nights Are they the first three days and three nights of the seven days? A while back, I had somebody from Texas, Shannon from Texas, and a gentleman named Gabriel, both of them extraordinary students of Scripture, and both noted that Genesis 1-5 reads differently than we would expect. It it says, I'll write Genesis 1-5 here, so the Internet audience can follow along. It reads, evening, day. So it says, so the evening and the morning was the first day. The order was therefore evening and then morning, or darkness before the light of life. And so we have darkness and then light. And this is, of course, the order of Genesis 1, 2 through 3, darkness before light. Darkness is before light in the order of Genesis. And this prevails throughout the entire seven days. Not quite. I'm going to say I said that wrong, but I'm going to leave it wrong. It's intentionally wrong so that you can discover what's wrong about it. So this evening day format, if you will, is in the creation week. So the evening and the morning is the phrase. That's Genesis 1-5, it's Genesis 1-8, it's Genesis 1-13, 1-19, 1-23, and 1-31. How many days is that? That's six days. So the evening and the morning applies to the six days. But it does not, it is not in the seventh day. What's the obvious question then? Why isn't it in the seventh day? Why is it in the first six days and not in the seventh day? Then we have the fourth day. The fourth day 
is the two great lights that rule over the what? The day and the night. So the seventh day is excluded. The fourth day does have the evening and day format, but it says day before night. I'll read that in a minute. Genesis 1.18. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. To divide the light from the darkness. I'm going to put that word from up here all the time. Because that comes into play whenever you're talking about the book of Genesis. Divide the light from the darkness. It is good from evil, not good and evil. It's good from. Wheat from tares. Light from darkness. The statement to divide the light from the darkness is a repeating of Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Let me read that for you. So here we go. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and it was good. So the light is good. This is the prime of all light. Prime of all, which is non-particle. In other words, this is the light of life. You all know this. That's John 8.12. Jesus says, I am the light of life. I am the first light, the non-particle light that caused life to come into being. This is me. That's what he says in John 8, 12. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, of course, there's there's particle light. That's the sun. There's non-particle light. That's Christ. Hopefully, I've said that enough that it's beginning to take form. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and it was good. Of course it's good. It's Christ. It's God himself. And God divided the light from the darkness. Notice the word from. I'll underline it again. From, from. Light from darkness. Good from evil. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now let's go over here to 118. And to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the day. Or I'm sorry. And to di- ha, lost it. And to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So God set the greater light and the lesser light in the firmament of the heaven heavens to give light to the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. So there I have the light day and the darkness night divided the light from the darkness day and night, which is a reversal of the evening day format and the other five days. Is anybody still awake? Congratulations. Oh, I wonder who's calling me. It could be for me, you know. It could be it could be either Worcestershire or Liam Perrins. It could have been apparently it's none of those. Doggone it. The light day, the darkness night, divided the light from the darkness, day and night. The duplication of the fourth day and the first day is unmistakable. Therefore, it must be intentional because God is what? Omniscient. He knew what he wrote. He knew what he said. That's a big duh. Christ says in Matthew 12:40, three days and three nights. He says days and nights. Why doesn't he say night and day or evening and day? Christ says the sign of Jonah is days in authority over nights, not the evening in authority over the day. And I just brought up to you two days in which there is this confusion. That's not confusion. That's not the right word. We might be confused, but there is this 
a contradictory element here. And that, of course, is a wonderful thing, because if we can't figure it out, what does that mean? It means there's a fantastic treasure here. And that's what Mary Ann's trying to do, and Shannon from Texas. And thus we are left with where to place the three days and three nights in the first seven days of creation. So if I start getting rid of some of this stuff, hopefully it's enough for the Internet to write it all down. I have how many days of creation? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Whoops. Let's move Adam over. I know it's amazing what I'm able to do. I can count all the way to seven, but I have three days and three nights. Where do you put them in those seven days? That's what I'm asking you. Do you put them here? Do you put them here? Do you put them in the middle? Where is the sign of Jonah in the creation week? And, uh, and of course, in theological circles, there's great gnashing of teeth here. And I want you to make your decision. I don't want you to have my decision. My decision is mine, and you can't have it. Well, yeah, you can have it. I can be bribed. It's, I mean, you can get it out of me, obviously. I'm a pastor. We'll take money. Don't get between a pastor and a $10 bill. Get yourself hurt. But there's a lot, of, a lot of disagreement, to be serious for a second. I've obviously suggested, I hope you've noticed it, that I'm, I'm saying 456 is where the sign of Jonah is. But others disagree with me. Can you believe that? It's amazing, but they do. They say one, two, three. There are all kinds of positions here, but you find yours and you defend it as best you can. See, this is the light comes to rest on the seventh day because the light is what's making the life, right? And Christ is the light of life. John, again, 8, 12. He says, I am this light that is creating all of this life. Do you get that? Do you understand that? You need to know who I am and what I'm doing. He shows you that in Matthew 17. He is the light of life. And he's making life. And that light rests on the seventh day. So you have light comes to rest. Uh, or you have light installed. I'll get to that in a minute. Light is the greater lights placed on the fourth day. So we have this day, I have the greater light. On this day, I have the light resting. Does that make any sense at all? Once again, nodble, like cattle. Thank you. may not mean anything to you, but at least I'm trying. The point is, yea, a point, that Adam knew why and where. How do I know that Adam knows? Because of Romans 5.14 and 1 Timothy 2.14. Adam is an undeceived type of Christ. He's the only one so designated in the New Testament. He's undeceived and he's a type of Christ. He is the first type of Christ in Scripture because he's in Genesis. He's the original, if you will, type of Christ. Jesus God, that is what he calls himself in Acts. Jesus God began his entombment at 6 p.m. You know that, right? 6 p.m., Jesus God, God is in the tomb. And he had given up his life by his will, because there's no other way to do it, at 3 p.m., and I, of course, will tell you that that is Wednesday because I have to have the sign of Jonah. I can't have some half-baked idea of it's a day, a day and a half. That doesn't work. God knows what he says, and he's very good at math. So I have a three o'clock crucifixion where Christ wills himself to die because he has to. No one can take his life, and I have an entombment before six o'clock or right at six o'clock. And here's the problem, because you know that 6 p.m. Wednesday by Hebrew time or Hebrew reckoning, Genesis 1-5, that's 1-5 evening before day, right? So that's how they reckon time. They do not do it the way we Gentiles do it. We have this odd thing, and they have the right thing, by the way. Uh, 
6 p.m. Wednesday by Hebrew time reckoning, Genesis 1-5, is our Thursday. So 6 p.m. Wednesday is really Thursday. Does that, is that computing? I hope it is. Thursday, Friday, Saturday then would be three nights and three days. Hopefully that made sense. I'm doing my best. Resurrection would then occur on the first day that follows the weekly Sabbath that follows the two high Sabbaths. Because I have two high Sabbaths in there. This is a high Sabbath. That's Wednesday. That's Passover. This is a high Sabbath. That's Thursday. That's unleavened bread. This is a high Sabbath. The eighth day. That's Sunday. That's first fruits. I have three high Sabbaths. And I have a weekly Sabbath. That's That's Saturday the 7th. And hardly anybody knows that today. How come that's the case? Because unfortunately the Catholics have tried to make a Friday crucifixion out of the sign of Jonah. And it won't work. It can't be right. And they don't even know that unleavened bread and Passover are right here. And they don't know first fruits is here. So in this eight-day span, I have four Sabbaths. And it says, after the Sabbaths, Christ resurrected. So there we go. And all of that to make a point. Yea, another point. God knows what he says. He's omniscient. And Jesus is God. And he said three days and three nights, placing days in authority overnight. So where is the crucifixion? Where in the crucifixion week is the sign of Jonah? And I would like to point out, which is yet another point. Hurrah. How many points am I going to have today? 559 Wednesday is what day in our reckoning? PM, 5.59 Wednesday. What day is that? That's Wednesday day. 6 p.m. Wednesday is what? Thursday night. So you have to know that to figure out where you get the sign of Jonah in the crucifixion week. Feel free to make your own chart and resolve the three hours. Repeating the question. Where is the sign of Jonah in the account of Adam? I put it in the crucifixion week for you. Not really. You have to do it yourself. But I actually did do it. Watch the film. We can assume that Jonah's days in the great fish where he is dead. Jonah 2, 1 through 7. Put that for the Internet. Jonah is dead. He he identifies himself as dead. How could he write it if he's dead? Well, obviously, he was what? Resurrected. I have the death and the resurrection of Jonah. How long do you think it took? Take a guess. Three days and three nights, because that's Matthew 12, 40, right? So Jonah's dead in the great fish. And it's especially 2-7, and you really see it at 2-7. He tells you, I'm dead, Jonah 2-7. 2-1 as well. And Jonah's subsequent resurrection, Jonah 3-1 and Jonah 3-3, he tells you he's dead, and he tells you he's resurrected. Because God speaks to him, and he says something to Jonah's body. He says what? What does he say? You know the story. You see, watch the cartoon. He says, arise, Jonah, arise. When God commands the dead to rise, they arise. They can't stop themselves. They have no choice. They arise when he says rise. That's good news for us because he's going to say to all of us to arise. And I want you to notice the similarity to Lazarus where Christ likewise, Christ is God. Christ likewise spoke Lazarus to life. Lazarus and Jonah were the signs to the Jews and to the Assyrians. Uh, Lazarus is the sign to the Jews, uh, John 12, 9 through 10. And Jonah is to the Assyrians a sign, uh, Jonah 3, 5 through 9. And as you know, if you've been here over the years, Lazarus is the second sign of Jonah. There's three signs of Jonah. One is Jonah. That's why I get lots of money. I get no money. Very little money. I wear the same pants every week. Come on. Seen my truck? It's brutal. <laughs> she laughs. I may, I may have finally shrunk down enough to where I hit new pants. 
I have lost almost 30 pounds as a result of this little experiment called atrial fibrillation. I was telling Jack, one thing you do when you get this is you stop eating everything that's any good. I don't know what triggers mine. I don't know. It could be, it could be standing in front of an audience. Let me see. Nope, so far so good. When I first did this, after I got my first episode, I came back, my heart rate was over 120 talking to you guys. And it took almost six or seven hours for it to go back down. I couldn't recover it. And I obviously pushed myself. The second week, it was uh, not nearly as bad. This week, I'm doing fine. This has a little alarm. Let me, let me show you. It's really cool. Let's see. First, I have to let it go. And then I'll just show you what happens if I get too high. Hey, isn't that cool? It says, you're in lots of trouble when that goes up. So I can wear that at night in case this happens at night and wake up the dogs and Lori whenever I feel like it. It's really a cool concept. Jonah is dead. He has a similarity to Lazarus. Lazarus is the second sign of Jonah. Christ, of course, is the third sign of Jonah. So we can rightly conclude then that the death, burial, and the fish, because I have the death of Jonah, I have the burial of Jonah in the fifth in the fish, and the res- resurrection of Jonah corresponds exactly. It has to correspond exactly to the death, entombment, and resurrection of the Lord God Almighty in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ. They would overlay perfectly. They would make. Uh, uh, you can make a chart. You can figure out. Jonah, and you can figure out Christ. If you have a position on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that does not lay as a template over the template of Jonah, does not have the three days and three nights, which is in the creation week, then you are in, what's that word? Error. And it is love to tell you so. And, on top of that, Romans 5.14 and 1 Timothy 2.14... I take those off? No, here they are. These things tell you a lot about Adam. Those verses. Something must, in the revealed life of Adam, have the sign of Jonah. Those verses make that true. Adam has an intelligence that is beyond our understanding. That's what 1 Timothy 2.14 says. He is undeceived by Satan. Satan is the wisest created being of all time. And he's full of wisdom, is full of wisdom, was full of wisdom. Ezekiel 28.12-14. He's described as the greatest intellect in all of the history of creation. And he could not deceive Adam and did not deceive Adam. So you now have to have that context when you make decisions about, uh, make conclusions about the actions of Adam. Obviously, Adam is in the garden. He has unfettered access to Christ. He is sinless at the time he's doing this. And he would have had complete understandings of the underlayments within the crucifixion week. He would know why the order in the creation week. He'd keep in mind that, and keep in mind the creation week was displayed not just for Adam. Adam had to find about it, out about it being told by God. But who found out about it while it was happening? Look up Job. The angelic host saw the creation week. Adam was taught the creation week. How much did the angels comprehend? Did God do to the angels what he did with Adam? In other words, or did he leave the angels to figure it out on their own? Were they able to? Does the evidence say they did or they did not? And Adam would know, however, all the reasonings, all the statements declared in the creation seven. What I mean by statements is God put messages into the creation seven. Again, whom did he put the messages for? Who was the first and foremost audience again? Inside the creation seven are testimonies of Christ. His, his, his crucifixion is there. And there's also the refutations of the lies of Satan. God refutes the lie of Satan. 
in his creation week. And I submit it. It is certain. It has to be. If the, if the lie of Satan is being uh, disposed of by God in the creation week, who was not deceived? Adam. How was he not deceived? He knew what the creation week said. How it destroyed the lie of Satan. Did the angels know? The evidence in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 is that they did not. Remember that Michael did not accuse Satan of anything when he fought with him over the body of Moses. Why didn't he accuse Satan? We'll get to that in the weeks to come, perhaps. I submit it is certain that Adam possessed the entirety, the totality of all that is and was contained in the first week. It cannot be emphasized enough, the implications of 1 Timothy 2.14. I've tried to do it my whole so-called career. Make people understand what the consequences of Adam not being deceived by Satan. What is required to fend off Satan? I'm going to predict something. I'm going to make a fantastic prophetic utterance here that proves that I am a man of tremendous capability. None of us have been able to fend off Satan. He blows us out whenever he wishes. He does not personally attack us. He has a system in place. He is in Babylon. He doesn't, he's not in Anchorage. He doesn't come to me and say, Steve, that's an ego of somebody who wants to be important. It's nonsense. What he has is a is a comprehensive uh, pollution of the world. No one is being personally called by Satan. The phone that rang a few minutes ago, that was not Satan for me. In case you were wondering. Quit with the Satan made me flip Wilson defense. It's nonsense. It was mocked in the 60s, my goodness. I've said that before, but it doesn't seem to matter. Again, Timothy 2.14 tells us that Adam was unmoved by Satan, unaffected. Who else, angel or man, has been able to have that said of them? Not only, and again, all conclusions with respect to Adam must conform to Timothy 2.14. Now, only when you have the correct uh, frame of reference that Timothy 2.14 gives you, that you can you begin to place the template of the sign of Jonah with Adam. So I'm going to give you three choices now. Where can you put it? Choice number one. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm glad nobody's sitting in the front row. The obvious first choice would be the process of what? Glad you laughed at that. That was not easy. <laughs> the obvious first choice would be a process of the building of Eve. Genesis 2, 21 through 23. And I said that correctly. The word means building. Eve was builded. From the materials of Adam. And it means side. It does not mean rib. God pierces the side of Adam. Does that make sense? He's a type of Christ. Pulls out flesh and bone and builds Eve from it. So that's your first choice. So I have, what does, how does he describe Adam in that? He says Adam is in a deep sleep. Abraham also a deep sleep. Sleep. What does God mean by deep sleep? And then there's the building of Eve. And then the awakening of Adam. The arising up of Adam. And then Adam has this declaration, this proclamation. As you know, woman, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. So that's your first choice. Second choice would be the trial of Adam. And that's Genesis Three, I think what, uh, let's go all the way back to nine, I, I would guess. Nine through 24. Adam and Eve and Satan undergo a trial, as you know, a legal procedure. 
And the great, there's this great call from the omniscient God. Where are you and who told you? Those questions he asks of Adam and the woman. Uh, obviously, he's omniscient. He knows where Adam is. He knows who told him. So why does he ask the question? Again, it's a courtroom procedure. The judge is sitting there. The judge is Christ, John 5. Where are you has incredible meaning, as does who told you. They are within the context of this trial, this procedure, this proceeding. And they directly uh, are directly impacting the confession of Adam, because he confesses when he hears those questions. He was ready to confess, as you know, beforehand. That is the meaning of the fig leaf coverings. He says this, the woman gave, I'm sorry, the woman you gave me. She gave me. And that is a mission of failure. Because Adam lost the woman that God gave him. Note John 17, 12. Christ lost none. Those you gave me, I lost none except the son of perdition, which is a nomenclature for the Antichrist, as you know. So you see this complement element in Matthew or John 17, 12 to Genesis 3, 9 through 24. The first Adam is a type of Christ, Romans 5, 14. He's incredibly brilliant. He's unbelievably brilliant. And he's unbelievably committed to God. So do not make him stupid or silent. The woman you gave, she gave me. An admission of failure. The central question then is the length of the trial. How long did the trial, how long did Genesis 3, 9 through 24, how, how, what period of time is that? When did Christ come to the garden? How much time passed between the eating, the ingestion of the fruit by Adam, or if you wish, Eve? How long, we'll get to that in a second. How long before, from the eating of the fruit uh, to the arrival of Christ in the garden and the two calls? What's the time duration between the fall of Adam and the arrival of the Ancient of Days? Because that's who this is. Thank you. The presiding judge has come. He's the Ancient of Days. You can read what he looks like in Daniel 7, Daniel 9. And he has come to preside over the trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan. Who, who was condemned? Only Satan. Did Adam, let me ask it this way, I have seven feast days, don't I? I have Passover, I have unleavened bread, I have first fruits, I have Pentecost or Shavuot, I have trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Which day did Adam fall on? Pick a feast day. Which one was it? Did he fall on Passover? He is a type of Christ. When he fell, what is he? Is he alive or dead as God defines life and death? Did he die at three o'clock on Passover? Did Christ come on first roots or did he come on trumpets? Figure out your chart because it has to be there, doesn't it? It has to be there, Romans 5.14. Did the trial commence on atonement on Yom Kippur? When were the fig coverings removed? Because God takes the fig coverings off and puts the blood covering garments on them and declares them to be redeemable. Doesn't he? And she is called the mother of all living. So clearly she is redeemable. So their confession, both confessed. And both were found to be redeemable in trial. But when were the fig coverings removed? And when they're removed, is there a period of time between the fig coverings and the blood coverings? Where is the sign of Jonah is what I'm asking you, right? In the... In the uh, Verses or the account of Adam. Okay, are we have option three? That would be the timeline of the fall of the woman. In other words, how much time passed between the eating by the woman? Her believing the lie of Satan and the eating by Adam. 
was it three days and three nights? Because it has to be there. Adam is a type of Christ. Christ is fulfilling the typology of Adam. Again, the unequaled intellect of Adam must be foremost in all considerations as well as his typology of Christ. Did Adam follow the sign of Jonah at the fall of the woman? Did he wait three days and three nights before he took the fruit? Or did he take the fruit and three days and three three nights Christ comes? How does it work? Well, I'm asking you to decide. If you answer yes, that Adam followed the sign of Jonah at the fall of the woman, then answer, why did he do it? Why did Adam purposely purpose to include this pattern? How did he know how to do this? How did he know that this was something he should do? Where and when did Adam have this explained to him? Did he have it explained during when he asked about the creation week? Did he have it explained when he uh, asked about the building of Eve? When did he have it explained to him? Did he follow it at the fall of the woman? Does the naming of the animals, here's another thing that he does. Every single animal got a name. Each one received a distinct name, a unique name. Names that did not repeat themselves. There was no replication in the naming Does the naming of the animals coincide with the feast day pattern, for example? How does this meld into the hidden manna and the new names of Revelation 2.17? Because the naming of the animals coincides, is the New Testament complement of that is Revelation 2.17, the prophecy of the church of Pergamos. I just threw that in there because it's fun. In case you want to know why he named the animals. Because you get a what? The saved get what? A new name. An absolute individual name. I will be the only Stephen. All other Stevens have to give up Stephen. Including Stephen. Thanks for laughing. I am funny. I have, I have a letter that says so. Right? Somewhere in here. You have to laugh therefore. Could it be all three of those? In other words, all of the above. The sign of Jonah is in each one of those things. And if it is, how did it get there? Marianne noted something else as well. I know, let's blame Marianne for all of this today. The in the mist. In the mist. is really phenomenal. If I can spell it. In the mist is a phrase that is over, over used in the Bible. In the mist of Genesis 1.6 and in 2.9. Obviously 2.9 is a reference to 1.6. In the mist in Genesis 1.6 is the first in the mist. I have two trees. And that's the key to understanding Adam, as you know, because you've been here for 25 years and you know that the key to understanding the story of Adam and Eve is to know that there's two trees. This is the tree of life. This is the free tree of surely die. Don't call me surely. The tree of life is in the mist. The tree of life was also in the mist of the garden, the Bible says, 2.9. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or good from evil. Almost made a mistake there. See also Genesis 3.3. That's for the internet people. Which brings us to the, brings to the for the proclamation from the dry, triune Godhead. And Genesis 3.22. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. In other words, here's how this connects. The tree of life is in the mist. And the tree of the knowledge of good from evil is there. My question is, is is the tree of the knowledge of good from evil in the mist? I'll read it for you. You tell me. The tree of life was also in the mist of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil from evil. Gosh, my Bible's wrong. Translation error. And I, like a 
I just read it, but knowing otherwise. He says, the man, behold, which means, wow, something incredible has come. The man has become like one of us to know good from evil. In the mist is clearly a significant phrasing occurring at occasions of amazing importance. Genesis 15, the animals were divided by Adam in the, uh, sorry, Abraham in the mist. Abraham also having a deep sleep. So you see this animals and Abraham deep sleep and Adam and, and deep sleep and animals. Genesis 19.29, Lot is removed from the mist of the overthrow. Matthew 10.16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the mist of the wolves. If you look at that, Matthew 10.15 is before Matthew 10.16. I know that's an extraordinary insight. I am a highly trained religious professional. Matthew, let me say it again if you lost that. Matthew 10.15 is before Matthew 10.16. Please throw money. Matthew 10.15, Christ says Sodom and Gomorrah. That's critically important. That tells you what's going on in Matthew 10.16. Christ himself is in the midst of the sea, Matthew 14, 24. Little children are with Christ in the midst. Christ is in the midst, Matthew 18, 20. John brings clarity to all of this in the midst stuff in John 19, 18. Jesus Christ is in the midst, John 20, 19 and John 20, 26. And that's a crucifixion re- reference. So I have the tree of life and I have the cross. Both of those are in the mist. Obvious question now. If you know the tree of life is in the mist and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is also there, good from evil, then the obvious question becomes, is there a relationship between the crucifixion cross being in the mist and the tree of life in the mist? Yeah, Next obvious question, how far apart are the two trees? Because it says this one's in the mist and this one was there. How far apart? 50 miles? 10 feet? Certainly, Jesus Christ has established himself as the tree of life. He's telling you, I am the tree of life. I'm in the mist, just like the tree of life is in the mist. Let me ask you this. Is in the mist as it applies, as scripture applies it, is it a singular positioning? And to rephrase, I almost said something else. Okay, I have to mark it. Because I thought it. I thought it. So I'm guilty. Crucifixion is in the mist and the tree of life is in the mist. Are they in the exact singular position? Is this the exact identical, that's a redundancy, point on the earth? Because this is the place that the skull of Goliath, this is called Gaul Goliath. This is the place that David buried the skull, 1 Samuel 17, 51 through 54. This spot where the tree of life is and the crucifixion is, is where Goliath's skull is buried. Why did he cut off Goliath's head while he was alive and put his head there but hide the armor in his tent? He kept the armor. How heavy is the armor? How big's David at the time? He's hauling this armor around. Puts it in his tent. What's he going to do with it? I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it again. So I know I have people on the internet, people that haven't. What is the ballistics of a rock to go through the skull of a man this size, Goliath? What's the feet per second? Those of you who fire guns for fun and for a living, we have both here. I'm going to penetrate a helmet that this man, who might have been seven, eight hundred pounds, and he was a monster, he was Nephilimic, and that rock has got to go through that helmet and hit him in the head because it says it lodged in his forehead. It didn't kill him. 
How fast did it go? That's my answer. Could David have thrown it that fast? Or was this a supernatural act, uh, much like the battles that Joshua had in the book of Joshua, how God used rocks to kill men that were intertwined with the Israel soldiers? And every single soldier came back alive. That is an amazing thing that you should follow up on. So this is the skull of Goliath. That's why it's called Gaul Goliath. We, because we're idiot Gentiles, call it Golgotha. We remove the Goliath element of it, which is critical. But if you conclude that this position is a singular position and the crucifixion and the tree of life are in the same position, then how many trees can be in the mist by that definition? Did I make you conclude that and then now lead you to this problem that you have? Can the tree of the knowledge of good and evil be in the mist is what I'm asking you if in the mist is a singular position. And is it a singular position because the crucifixion is in the mist? Because the crucifixion is in the mist. Why that spot? What about that spot? <sighs> okay, we're going to return to this subject and others. Lucas, I didn't get you in today. Sign of the deaf, mute, neat demon. How can, how the two and the one, I have two de- demoniacs and then I have one demoniac. That's because one demoniac is saved and the other one is not saved. How can you be not saved if you're a demoniac and God takes the demons out of you and you can talk and everything when you go back to being a demoniac? What's up with that? But one did not. And then I have the belief-unbelief of the father of the, of the boy that is dead and Christ resurrects him. And all of that is in the context of the pillar of cloud and the... Transfiguration. That Lucas will understand that. Those of you who want to read his letter, you can come up and borrow it for a while. Okay, where am I now? I've asked that for a couple of months. Atrial fibrillation affects my acuity. It brings this fog of disorientation, uh, confusion. It makes me unsure of myself. I know how can we differentiate between AFib aftermath and my supposed normality. I got all of that. I'm not positive that I properly, comprehensively address the central conclusion of the central conclusive truth of Matthew 14, Mark 1, and Luke 4. I don't think I've done it. And I got in a discussion with a couple of people, Mary Ann being one of them. As I'm writing to Mary Ann, I'm going, I'm not sure that I actually told you what the conclusion was. And usually I don't answer these kinds of things. I let you figure them out for yourselves because that's the process that's so important. Matthew 4, but this is an exception. Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, that is the testing of the deity of Christ. That is, is this, and you have testing for purity in the scripture, the ashes of the red heifer. The red heifer has to be tested and approved. You have sacrificial animals that have to be uh, approved. So we have, we have, is this pure, good God or not? You have that element here. Not temptation. You can't tempt pure goodness. It's impossible. And that brings up Romans 5.14. I have the face-to-face conflict of Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, Luke 4 and Mark 1. So I must have had a face-to-face conflict of Adam and Satan. I have creator God, John 1, 3, and the murderer from the beginning, the father of the lie, John 8, 44, Ezekiel 28, 16. So that's who I have, the murderer who, who conceived the lie and God, Jesus Christ. And I may have already brought all of this to a certain, to its proper end, but again, I'm not positive that I did. Therefore, I feel the need to get it in the record, to reemphasize it if I have done it, because the subject requires that I do so. Jesus Christ responds to Satan. So I'm going to erase the board. Satan is there telling him things. And who's watching? The angels are watching. And Jesus Christ responds to him. And this is what he says. He says, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. That's what Jesus Christ says to Satan. 
And if you don't know that, you don't know what's going on in Matthew 4, Luke 4, or Mark 1. In Exodus 17, 1 through 7, there are two things that Israel accuses God of. One of those, they say, is God among us or not? And then they say this as well. They said, this, I've got them in reverse order. They say, first, why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and kill our children and kill our animals? And then they say, is God among us or not? And Christ, therefore, identifies that uh, incident. And it also comes up at Numbers 23 through 6, Numbers 21, 5 through 6, and Deuteronomy 6.16. If you need those references, you can get them from me afterwards. That's really for the Internet who have pause and repeat. Christ identifies why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and kill our children and kill our animals. He calls that the lie. 28.16 and Genesis 3.4. That is what Eve confronts. That is what Adam confronts and was not deceived. And that is what uh, the angels confronted in Ezekiel. And, and that is what Satan is saying to Christ in the stones and the bread. Jump off and worship me. He's saying this. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And Christ again says this is evil. And if you say to God, to God's face, that he created temporal beings for the sole purpose of extinguishing them, annihilating them. You are created. You don't have any existence. He created all of us just to kill us and the animals. Then you have, if you say that to him, and that's said all the time, is it not? If you say that to him, you have uttered a profanation of the highest wickedness. It's equal, again, to Genesis 3, 4 through 5. In Exodus 28:16, the abundance of your traffic. God doesn't do this. He creates living soul, nepesh kaya. And at Bonnie's memorial service, this is what I said, and that's why I think I didn't say it here, because I can't remember if I said it here. You could say, well, why don't you watch your videos that are all over the internet? I hate watching them. Have you seen how unattractive I am? And I lisp. It's awful. And I wear the same pants. Can't do it. I'm going to make a lot of people now go back and see if I've ever worn different pants. <laughs> That's kind of my idea of a good, good time. I'm identified, lectures are identified by what tie I'm wearing. So I'm going to change the pants, but keep the shirt and tie the same for the next three years. That's my... <laughs> If you say this to God, it is wicked and he doesn't do this. And he tells us, I, he says, I create living souls. And the word is for living being. It is nepesh kaya. It's the same word. It's a Genesis 120 and 122. It's a Genesis 124 and 25. And it is a Genesis 2-7. It is the same word every time. Living souls, living souls, living souls. That's what I do. And all that has the breath of life lives as he defines life. Acts 17, 22 through 25. I don't have time to read it. But he is the breath of life. Jesus Christ gives his breath of life to all life. He is the breath of life. Can't say that enough. There is no other breath of life. If you need breath of life and we all have to have breath of life, you can't get it anywhere but Christ. He's the only one that's got it. He is it. Everyone else is lying. How's that? Going to make me popular? Kicked off of Facebook? Hope so. It is a damnable lie to accuse God of not giving his breath to his creation. To accuse God of not creating life, not creating reality. Daniel 5:22 through 23. I should read it. I don't have time. The king ignores the testimony that was Nebuchadnezzar. And God says to him, I hold your breath. 
Jesus Christ stood before Satan. This is God himself, the creator of Satan. And Satan did not know who this was until Christ made him go. And he told Satan that, and all of the angels who are watching Matthew 4, I am the breath of life, the only one. I have given myself. I am the living God. All that has my breath is alive. Daniel 5.23 affirms that God is among us. It says he holds your breath because he has given us his breath. That's what among us means. When Israel said, we don't think he's among us, they're saying, we don't think God has given us life. We think he's just going to kill us, extinguish us. There is no eternity. There is no existence. When you say that about God, you are saying that he is evil and he is not. He has none of those thoughts in his mind. Our souls return to him, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Our souls return... The breath returns, us, our essence, ourselves, our consciousness, all the information that we accumulate in this short life on this earth is still there. And it is profoundly wicked to assert otherwise. As our academic institutions scream out endlessly, our media endlessly says we're to be extinguished. We have nothing. Hopelessness. We have a short temporal time and we disappear. That is damnable. And it is evil. And that is what Matthew 4 is about. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. This is where everyone has to stand up.